Euripides, Homer, Shakespeare, Agatha Christie. They're all really, really good storytellers over the course of Western history, at least. But I would think, at least in the West, um, the 22 verses of today's gospel lesson uh, are probably the best known and most recognizable of stories, the one we usually call the prodigal son. Luke starts the chapter by saying that the, the scribes and the Pharisees were tisking over the fact that Jesus was eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. Why wasn't he eating with them? The righteous people, they resent it. And so Jesus, good teacher that he is, gently tries to to explain what it is that he's about. And so he starts by telling them a, a story about a shepherd that loses just one sheep and goes and looks for it, and when he finds it, he celebrates. And apparently that drew a bunch of blank faces. And and then he tries again, and he tells a story about a woman who lost one of her many coins, and she sweeps for it, and when she finds it, she throws a party to celebrate it. More blank faces, and now maybe maybe they're hard faces at this point. But he doesn't give up. He doubles down, and he tells the story that we usually call the prodigal son, though as per the little thing on page 9 in the bulletin, uh, the prodigal is, is pretty certainly the least important of the characters of the three in the story. The most important is, is the father, who is the God figure, not specifically because he's a father, but because he's unconditionally loving towards both of his sons. And of perhaps greatest importance is the oldest of the sons, who in his anger and resentment pushes everyone away so he's left outside while the party goes on inside. And it's just a remarkably powerful story, so well drawn and left open-ended. What would the older brother ultimately do? What would the Pharisees and scribes do? What would we do? So there's nothing a preacher can add to it, but some of the details are, are, are sometimes a little um, uh, hidden and I think are worthy of, of lifting up. So, so that's all we're going to try and do this morning, maybe with a few stories of our own. Uh, the first of the details, uh, after he asks for his inheritance from his dad and liquidates the assets uh, into spendable cash, the, the younger son travels to a distant country. Now, this is Luke's gospel where everybody's traveling all the time, and a distant country wouldn't be a bad thing to travel to, but in this particular context, he traveled to a distant country means he now separates himself from love in his life, and he also separates himself from anyone who respects him. In fact, now people will routinely disrespect him. And eventually, undoubtedly, he comes to have little respect for himself because no one gives him anything. And he would have eaten of the pods, but he doesn't even have that. To travel to a distant country is to be in a place where you are cut off from love and respect. Jesus tosses this in for his Jewish audience You know as a Jewish audience that the character has hit rock, rock, solid rock bottom when he ends up feeding the pigs, and they're eating better than he has. You don't have to add anything to that one. But he comes to himself. Isn't that an interesting line? He comes to himself. 
and recognizes how much he has screwed it up and, and in the process feels so amazingly unworthy. Nevertheless, there's something inside him that tells them, tells him that, that perhaps he will not be utterly pushed out if he were to return home. And so he goes back, but before he can even, even complete his apology to his father, the father begins the celebration and says, bring him a ring, bring him a robe, kill him the fatted calf. But that, that's the cincher. Uh, because in the Middle East then and now and in so many parts of the world, including southeastern Wisconsin in the winter, when you go to visit somebody's house, what do you do with your shoes when you get to the door? Most of us, even though you're going to get cold feet, take them off, right, when you go into somebody's house. You don't want to drag dirt into the house. And so the visitors take their shoes off. The only people who wear the sandals or the slippers inside are the people who belong there, the family. And so for the father to say, put sandals on his feet, is the ultimate recognition that his son is not only welcome to be there, but he's still a part of the family. And so the celebration begins in earnest, and the older brother is out in the field working, and he hears of it, and he asks what's going on, and the servant tells him what's going on, and he's angry. Now, that's kind of a unique word in, in the Greek vocabulary, and it's not used that often in Scripture. It is used in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, however, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, and in Jonah chapter 4, verse 9, and you're all sitting there saying, yeah, we were all over that, Jesus, John. <laughs> but I'll, I'll just kind of elaborate on it, because I, I know you'd like me to. Uh, so the thing about Jonah is, remember in that book, he's not the hero. He's the anti-hero. Uh, I mean, he's the one who God asks, bring a message of repentance to the city of Nineveh. And he does everything possible not to do it. That's why the whale has, or the big fish has to swallow him and spit him out so that he goes there. He doesn't want to go there. And when he goes there, he does as little as he possibly can. And then having preached his little, like, one-word sermon to the people of Nineveh, he goes and sits outside the city because he's the symbol of religious intolerance and self-righteousness, and he wants those people smoked and vaporized. And, and, and sadly, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, he is so angry with God. Like the father figure, hey? He's so angry with God because he knows that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and God is not going to destroy Nineveh. In fact, God even sends a little bush to, to give him shade in the desert, and then the bush dies, and then he's just sitting there in the sun, in the heat of the wind, and then in chapter 4, verse 9, he's angry again, angry enough to die. He'd rather God killed him than have to sit there in the desert and watch God be merciful to the people of Nineveh. That now should give you a sense of how angry the older brother is. Not so much, really, with his younger brother, but with his father. Because his father hasn't kept score the way he has kept score. And he's done everything right. He is so angry. You all know, never is a long time. So now, technically, under Jewish custom, the, the younger son could ask for the inheritance in advance, unusual and probably hurtful, but not unheard of. To be in the presence of other people 
and to use an imperative with your father, listen, I've never disobeyed you. You've never even given me a stinking goat so that I could have a party. To say stuff like that, he didn't do that in that world. Never is a long time, but he's angry. Have you ever noticed how the righteous suffer? And they sometimes enjoy it. So this happened a long time ago to me, but is indelibly etched in my memory. So I worked at a congregation in the Hudson River Valley in in New York when I first got out of seminary, and and I was both the Christian ed director and the youth director. So in the mornings, I'd, you know, help run Sunday school, and I'd do the children's messages. Uh, But this was like an hour from where we lived, so I'd just stay there in the afternoon and then do youth group in the evening. Uh, So right after I started working there, you know, we got through the morning, I got all my stuff ready for youth group in the evening, and I'm just hanging out in, in the church, and I don't even know the building that well, so I'm kind of meandering around in the building. And, and I go to the kitchen, and like the communion is all spread out and kind of in disarray in there, which was kind of unusual, because this was usually a pretty organized sort of place. And I'm just sitting there looking at all these, these communion trays, and there's still like a lot of liquid in the little cups, so I like pound ten of them real quick. What are you guys laughing at? (laughs) Now, this is a Reformed Church in America congregation, people. This is like the Presbyterians, so they don't drink wine. They drink grape juice, and they were just going to throw it anyway. So I had a couple of cups of grape juice. And and think literally nothing of it, and, and then head out of the kitchen. And I don't know if Andy saw me or if he just sensed something, but... But Andy came in at that point. Now, I only saw Andy once in church the whole time I worked there. And the one time I saw him in church, he was arguing with the senior pastor of the congregation who was about the best human being you could, you could meet. And what he was arguing with him about was, why do you print the Lord's Prayer in the bulletin? If they don't know it by heart, they shouldn't be here. That, I'm not joking. That's, that's what he was saying. Andy was a really angry person. And, and so, so Andy tracks me down in the church and, and he gets in my face and he says, did you drink some of those communion cups? And I was so attacked and so surprised that I just lied. No. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I've, to, I always have felt bad that I lied, but I, I just, no, no. <laughs> and, he, and he didn't pursue the lie for whatever reason, but man, he went on to explain in great detail that, that the empty communion comes allowed them to know how many people had gone to communion. It was so important to know how many people had afforded themselves of the means of grace that day. So his wife had died, you know. Um, and he was angry about that. And, and the pastor who had buried her had left and David had replaced her. And, and so he was just mad at Dave for not being the pastor who had, who had buried his wife. And, and, he, and he just was mad at everything. He, somewhere along the way, became super righteous. And he had traveled to a distant country. Hey, where there wasn't any love anymore, any respect, because in his anger he just pushed everybody away all the time. And I never, I never, I worked there another two and a half years, and I never had another conversation with him. When we say things like "listen," never, words like that break our relationships in two. But the, it's not like they come out of nowhere. You know that. 
You know they come from hurt. You know they come from insecurity. They come from all of these things in our lives. But man, a lot of us travel to these distant lands. One of the things that's, that's always hard, I think, about applying these stories is, is that it's, it's not the same in our world. Um, it's not always super obvious who the sinners and the, and the tax collectors and, and the prostitutes necessarily are. And, and so sometimes in our defensiveness, like the older brother, we just push people away. We forget that we are connected to them. This son of yours. I think another thing that's, that's hard in our world is, is because we don't know exactly who it is who is in need, we then sometimes fail to do anything. Or we do know who's in need, and we fail to do anything. I mean, think about it in your own relationships. Um, there are some people who burn bridges shore to shore. You know, they just blow up their relationships. But isn't it truer that for most of us, the way we handle it is if, if we're just struggling with somebody, we, we just stop calling. Or in a larger sense, we just don't go places where people are different than us anymore. So you end up in this distant land. Conversely, perhaps there's someone in our life who, like the father in the story, can somehow say to us, either in a whisper or in a yell, whatever it might take, no, no, not this son of yours, this brother of yours. I'm always so struck by how little it actually takes um, to be really meaningful for, for somebody else. Uh, when Barb and I visited our young, oldest son in, in, in Togo, the fourth poorest country in the world, when we left his, his village... Uh, uh, you know, the last thing they said to us was, of course, safe travels and life blessings and everything. But right before that, they said something that the people in El Salvador say all the time, which is, don't, don't forget us. Just don't forget us. Take somebody you know to the doctor because they have a hard time driving and nobody else really is paying attention. Man, that's, that's a powerful gift. Just don't, just don't forget people. Jesus tells this amazing, amazing story that's actually kind of hard to preach about because it's filled with such power and passion. And it's so real because you've either been the prodigal a few dozen times in your life or what we are more unwilling to admit to, we've been the older brother because we do keep score and we are resentful and we wonder why Jesus isn't talking to us and putting the crown on our head. We get angry with God about these things. But, but, of course, it's only because we created the scoring system for ourselves in the first place. So a story like this. 2,000 years later, maybe we're kind of lucky. Because unlike the, the powerful tsunami that I think it was for the people who first heard it, now to us it just kind of comes across the little pond of your life, these little ripples. They kind of bump up against your soul, and they give you a chance to think about it. 
and maybe a chance to feel something about it. If you are the prodigal, right now, at a minimum, you have to trust that you're welcome to go back home. And if you're the older brother, and you hear a party break out in the distance, what will you do?